0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Rob, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, What's New in Precision Medicine? It's an important topic. It's one that um, you're going to hear all about in today's program. And today's program is supported by Foundation Medicine and Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, Now we have on the program today over 175 participants. You come from all over the United States, um, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities, and we also have international participants. Participants from Canada, India, Ireland, Lithuania, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well, and we're delighted that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Nora Chaudhry, and Dr. Chaudhry is, thoracic onco- is a thoracic oncologist and early drug development specialist, assistant attending physician thoracic oncology, lung cancer developmental therapeutics, Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Shahari is going to address understanding precision medicine, an overview and value of precision medicine, how precision medicine is different from targeted treatments, and precision medicine's role in informing treatment decisions predicting the response to the treatment for lung cancer. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program on to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shodhari.
2: Thank you so much, and I'm so delighted to be here today speaking to all of you. So first I wanted to start with providing an overview of the value of precision medicine and really a definition of what we consider precision medicine to be in oncology. So precision medicine is using understanding of patient and tumor characteristics to design treatments for that patient. Um, The overall goals of precision medicine are to overall improve outcomes for patients with cancers, offer therapies to patients that we believe are the most most likely to be beneficial to that patient, but also to avoid potential toxicities or side effects in patients who we think may not benefit from specific treatments. And in some cases, this could also include avoiding financial toxicities because, you know, many cancer treatments are unfortunately very expensive, and we would like to, you know, spare some of those costs if we don't think that patients would benefit from specific therapies. So precision medicine is overall, I would consider, a broad um, field of medicine. There's many ways that we apply precision medicine in oncology. And I wanted to next focus on how precision medicine is different from targeted therapies. So targeted therapies are drugs designed to act on a specific feature of a patient's cancer, usually a molecular feature. And what I mean by that is I'll focus on lung cancer, which is the cancer that I that I particularly treat. So for lung cancer, cancers can acquire specific mutations in their DNA that are not found in the DNA that patients are born with. And we can use those mutations to identify specific drugs that could benefit that patient. The most common, you know, the classic example that we have in lung cancer is patients whose tumors have EGFR mutations and benefit from targeted therapies, which are called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, that specifically treat those cancers. But patients who do not have EGFR mutations would not benefit from those same drugs. So targeted therapies are the specific drugs that can act on those specific mutations that we know a patient's cancer has. But we use, actually, the molecular, you know, makeup of the tumor in many other ways to design a patient's treatment. So, for example, you know, a tumor may have 10 different mutations, and while those mutations may not have specific targeted therapies, we may use knowledge of those mutations to pick other treatments that we think would be beneficial. We don't always use mutations. In some cases, we use other markers, which could be pathological markers, cell surface expression markers. You know, there's a variety of markers that we can use, and one that I'll also focus on specifically is a marker called pdl one in lung cancer. So this is a marker that we use in lung cancer to determine whether a patient may benefit from a form of immunotherapy called immune checkpoint inhibitors. So immunotherapy, you know, there's not a mutation in pdl one but it's really... It's a score from 0 to 100, and we know patients with high PD-L1 may benefit more from immune checkpoint inhibitors, and in some cases, they may not actually need chemotherapy because they may have such a good response with immunotherapy alone. This is just one example that I highlight of precision medicine where um, it's not exactly a targeted therapy, but we use our understanding of the patient's cancer Um, to really design a treatment that we think would be most beneficial. In this case, for some patients, omitting chemotherapy from a a treatment plan that otherwise would be given to to other patients. Um, For lung cancer, how do we use precision medicine? There's actually a variety of ways that we use precision medicine in lung cancer. So for patients with advanced lung cancer, obtaining DNA sequencing of patient tumors is standard of care in the United States, and it guides many of our treatments because, you know, I know we have patients from, you know, multiple countries all over the world, but I will kind of focus on how, um, you know, standards in the United States. But in the United States we have um, 10 approved targeted therapies that can be used in the first or second line setting for lung cancer. And so we, for all of our patients, we do obtain DNA sequencing, also called next-generation sequencing, to really identify patients who may have those mutations or alterations and who may benefit from a targeted therapy. And again, in other ways, we also apply other mutations that don't have targeted therapies to understand how we might design a patient's treatment. Um, other things that I would mention is that we also use patients' molecular results to identify if they, could be benefit, if they could benefit from clinical trials to investigate targeted therapies that are not yet approved. And this is something that you know large academic centers also we'll focus on, especially for patients who have already, um, you know, progressed on the first-line standard of care treatment, we may consider clinical trials that could be beneficial to those patients. So I believe my time is running up, but in summary, you know, we use precision medicine in a variety of ways, specifically in lung cancer, um, and I'm happy to answer questions at the end of the session.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Shadhari. Um, That was a superb presentation, really just excellent and really um, set the stage for the program today, so thank you so much. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Leonard Saltz. And Dr. Saltz is medical oncologist, executive director for clinical value and sustainability, head colorectal oncology service, Memorial Fund kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine at Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Saltz will be addressing precision medicine's role in predicting the response for the treatment of colon colon cancer. <laughs> talking with healthcare team about precision medicine and its benefits and open notes, asking healthcare team asking your healthcare team to help you understand open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saltz. Uh,
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Time's limited, so I'm gonna be a true New Yorker and speak quickly. Um, What you've just heard uh from Dr. Chowdhury about uh lung cancer in principle is very similar in other cancers, but in colon cancer, we haven't made quite as much progress as our colleagues in uh, lung cancer have in utilizing targeted therapies. And that really has something to do with the uh, lower incidence of targets. But nevertheless, uh, precision medicine really is important in managing uh, metastatic colorectal cancer. It doesn't really have very much role in terms of the early stage disease with the exception of making a very important distinction which is whether or not a tumor is what we call microsatellite stable or microsatellite instable and you will often hear the term mismatch repair deficient, referred to as uh, synonymous with microsatellite instable. Those patients, about 15% of colon cancer patients overall, who have a tumor that is missing one of the mismatch repair proteins, which means that it is mismatch repair deficient, which results in a microsatellite instable DNA, those patients have a very good sensitivity in their tumor to uh, the uh, kinds of immunotherapies that Dr. Chowdhury was just speaking about in lung cancer, the uh, PD-1 inhibitors such as pembrolizumab, nivolumab, or distalumab. However, the common type of colon cancer that is mismatch repair proficient or microsatellite stable has virtually no sensitivity to those immunotherapies. Now, while immunotherapies are often very well tolerated, anything we do can have side effects. And these drugs are very expensive. So we want to use the, we want to use the drugs in the right patient where the risk of toxicity and the expense is justified because we can expect benefit. And that's where this precision decision of whether or not it is a mismatch repair proficient microsatellite stable tumor, which won't benefit, from immunotherapy versus mismatch repair deficient microsatellite instable, which has a very good chance of benefiting from immunotherapy comes about. Now, the other important uh, distinction we make in looking at the tumor is for certain genes that tend to drive the tumor's growth and survival and so we tend to do this by a general test that looks that that looks at a broad panel of genes this has for years been called next generation sequencing it's a bit of an antiquated term but we still use it and we can do this either by sampling the tumor or by doing a blood test and looking for the tumor dna in the circulating blood that's so called liquid biopsy that gives us virtually the same information There are a few genes that are particularly of interest in colon cancer. One is called KRAS, one is called NRAS, and these RAS genes, when they're mutated, um, tell us that certain types of drugs that we might otherwise use in a patient simply will not work, and we can spare patients the toxicity of those drugs. Whereas if these genes are normal or wild type, then those drugs have a good chance of being helpful. There are also certain targets, such as the gene BRAF, where when it's mutated, the tumor tends to grow a bit more aggressively, but now drugs have been developed that are specifically targeting BRAF mutations. And so these drugs have no benefit whatsoever in a BRAF non-mutated tumor. But if the tumor has a BRAF mutation, then these drugs can be quite helpful. So using these molecular tests to define the tumor gives us very good information on how to uh, target that particular tumor and which drugs are likely to be beneficial to the patient and which drugs are unlikely to be beneficial. Now, I've been asked to discuss a little bit about talking to your healthcare team about precision medicine. They're, like everything else in medicine, it's simply important to keep lines of communication open. Recognize that there's no such thing as a foolish question. It doesn't matter if you've asked it before, if you might have heard something before. If it's on your mind, we the doctors and the healthcare providers need to know about it. So if you understand it, if you understand what questions have been asked and what the answers are, terrific. If you don't, you need to ask, have we done an analysis of my tumor? Have we looked at the genes? Is my tumor... Uh, mismatch repair deficient or is it proficient? Is the tumor the type where immunotherapy can be helpful or is it the tumor the type where immunotherapy won't be helpful? These are the kinds of questions that your doctor is thinking about and that we want you, of course, to be aware of as well. Now, the other topic that I've been asked to talk about is the concept of open notes. Open notes is a part of a overall process that has really been mandated by the Affordable Care Act that makes virtually everything that we, the medical team, know and say and do immediately available to you. And so you'll be getting your doctor's notes on your portal, you'll be getting your scan results on the portal, you'll be getting your blood tests on the portal. This is a two-edged sword, and you need to think very carefully about who you are and what works for you and what helps you cope with your cancer diagnosis and your treatment. For some people, the more information they have, the better they feel, the more comfortable they feel. But remember that this is information that's predominantly geared towards people with formal medical training. And it may not be all that easily understandable to somebody, regardless of how uh, otherwise uh, sophisticated you are, um, because you haven't had that particular training and, and, and familiarity. So you may find things in the note that seem very concerning, and they're really meaningless. You may find things in a scan result that seem like they're very worrisome, and in fact they're not. That's one possibility. Another possibility, of course, is when we look at a test, if it's obviously a good result, that's very reassuring. The sooner you know that, the happier you are. But if it's a bad result, if the tumor has grown, if the tumor that was gone has come back, uh, learning about that on a scan result by yourself at home at night without someone to explain it to you and without putting that information in context can be quite upsetting. So you need to make some decisions about whether you're going to access all of the electronic information that is necessarily going to be made available to you. So I think that's about as much time as I have today. I hope that information and that overview is helpful to you. I'll be happy to take questions later.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Saltz. That was an outstanding presentation, lots of great information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is um, a leader, myelo neoplasms program, member of Sloan kettering Cancer Center, and a professor while at Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing precision medicine's role in predicting the response for the treatment of leukemia and guidelines for fair telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, quality of life concerns, prepared lists of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this Program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow.
3: Well, thank you, Carolyn, and uh, welcome, everyone. And uh, I have a, some tough acts to follow. You just heard from some leaders in the fields in the areas of solid tumors. But um, if anyone knows, um, my area, I work in blood cancers or leukemia. So our topic today is precision medicine. And, you know, I think we've, we have really benefited from advances in diagnostics and precision medicine and leukemia when I was thinking about today's topic, you know, going all the way back to very early times, Hippocrates, for example, I mean, I think (laughs) we took a very simple approach to illness, or they did, literally asking it, what what bad humor might someone have in their system, whether it's black bile, green bile, white or red, Um, and um, ironically, too much red blood is a blood cancer, and, and, and I think they were onto something even back then, but over the decades and with medical advances, the diagnosis of leukemias or blood cancers, particularly in context of precision medicine, has evolved greatly. In, in short, leukemias or blood cancers were divided into big categories, chronic or acute, based on their, you know, the pressure that's needed to treat them and sometimes the, the risk involved, um, and by the cell type, essentially what blood cell has gone wrong and has created a leukemia. We so look at a diagnosis like acute leukemia It was broken down into seven types based on looking down a microscope, which is a tool we've had for for centuries, to classify what the blood cells look like. Ironically, that didn't always help us very much. It might have told us a bit about the way the cells behave and some of the complications, but it really didn't help us with therapies. When the genetic code was cracked and the ability to sequence the genetic code um, became more widely available, the field of leukemia really expanded and exploded at precision or personalized care for leukemia patients became a reality. It was a regimen used in acute leukemia for several decades without um, break because it really was effective across multiple types of leukemia, again, looking down the microscope and seeing patients in the clinic and the hospitals. This was for AML. If you look at AML in 2023, we can now, before we want to treat, there, for example, is a very large um, clinical research initiative in the United States and, and similar efforts globally to, to pause and to look at the tumor and say, this may look like type 1, 2, 3, 7, et cetera, of acute myeloid leukemia, but what's making it tick? Is there a specific gene that's been overexpressed, that's been mutated or altered? We've, we've stumbled upon clear targets and clear therapeutics that can then help us. So if a, a patient with acute leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia is characterized and they have a gene called uh, or a, a mutation in something called FLT3, um, which, which activates leukemia cells quite a bit and, and might make them grow faster and, and be more challenging. We can effectively treat them with split tree inhibitors, of which there are several, several FDA approved and several in development. More recently, a simple enzyme involved in, the, in how cells grow called IDH was found to be abnormal. Different types of it, IDH 1 and 2, and therapeutics have been approved um, in, in those areas as well, offering all medications with. with great ability to treat leukemia cells based on their specific defect, what's making them tick. Other leukemias have benefited as well. Lymphoid leukemias sometimes have a specific genetic profile that makes them more amenable to a targeted drug rather than chemotherapy. Fortunately, chemotherapy, systemic chemotherapy using multiple different medicines, often in sequence and often tailored to patient-specific metabolism, has really Put remission rates in, in ALL, for example, in children extremely high and adults high as well, especially if we treat people as if they're of younger age when we can. But again, precision medicine has helped us find targets in these patients as well. Harnessing the immune system, which I know my colleagues uh, are quite familiar with on this call, has been a benefit in leukemias, particularly lymphoid leukemias as well, based on the, the recognition that leukemia cells in general will have targets or features that allow us to, with engineered immune cells, harness that type of therapy to put leukemia patients who hadn't responded previously into remission and even cure them. This is all a result of precision medicine indirectly, um, and when it comes to targeted drugs and selecting therapies in acute myeloid leukemia, absolutely directly. I take care of many patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, and I think that probably sets one of the best examples of identifying a target, developing targeted therapies, and using tools that come from precision medicine to gauge response. CML is characterized by a certain genetic defect called the Philadelphia chromosome. That's the basis of that leukemia. It, it, it's, we're fortunate that that tends to be the main thing that's wrong with those blood cells and is causing them to, to create a leukemia. Targeted therapies were developed more than 20 years ago, which are highly effective and really revolutionized the field. And uh, it's been an honor to work in the development for them. But what, what they have meant is, we needed very good precision medicine tools to understand just how good they were. And a test called PCR, which measures the amount of blueprint or DNA and RNA, if you will, for this Philadelphia chromosome, easily obtained by the blood, can tell us when the patient starts treatment, how they're doing along the journey, when they might be in a very deep remission, and even today in 2023, how a patient can stop therapy and be monitored carefully and be considered functionally cured because that PCR test didn't rise substantially if they stopped their medication. I have colleagues in the field who are working on what I would say is the next step, how to, how to have precision medicine-type tools widely available, perhaps um, to patients directly, uh, essentially a PCR test that you could um, uh, obtain yourself and, and manage. He's working with uh, – one of my colleagues is working in the developing nations to sort a way to have blood dried on a piece of blotting paper shipped by mail to a lab and be the same as if a patient had a blood t- test and a highly um, accurate and sensitive precision medicine test done live and in person. That is a huge advance and will be of great benefit to the global challenge of cancer as we move forward with targeted therapies. Let me turn in the next few minutes to some of the other topics I was asked to cover, which is something that came out of the pandemic, was a goal of ours in medicine to gain access to our patients no matter where they were, which is telemedicine or telehealth and also a little bit more on what Dr. Saltz and my other colleagues have mentioned, the um, open notes concept. So telemedicine is very suitable in many cancer settings. In my area, for example, in blood cancers, a lot of the work we're doing is reviewing data, blood tests. We're talking about symptoms. We're talking about results in, 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 in detail, as Dr. Saltz had uh, alluded to, things that need explanation. Um, and so having access um, more readily and in the comfort of one's home is quite an advantage, but we need to be prepared. Telehealth um, requires technology, so uh, to, not to belabor, but um, be prepared, um, think ahead, um, maybe have a check, a sound check, much like we did for of this call today, or a, an audio or video check, uh, call a friend or a, or a tech-savvy um, family member, friend, the office if you need help, of course, um, to make sure the connection's going to work. When the connection doesn't work, that, that then all is lost. Write your questions down. Bring a family member or a friend or a or, or loved one with you. It's often good, and we never mind seeing another face on the call or on the line, Um, just like in the office. Um, That's one of the the best secrets for um, you know remembering what the visit contained, what information was transmitted, and and what follow-up action items are needed. Um, We lose the human touch. We're not able to examine people directly. Sometimes we're able to do visually a fair assessment of how someone's doing. So we really rely on you to tell us how you're doing. So take a thorough inventory and report things and. organize it as you can a bit, because there's probably a lot of ground to cover, sometimes in a short amount of time. With regards to open notes, um, uh, the only thing I would add to the brilliant uh, comments from Dr. Saltz um, were that um, be patient with us, because we are trying to serve many purposes with that. We want our patients to have access to all the information about their health care, to know everything they can about their, their their cancer and their treatment, but it does often require context and explanation. And our, our notes are also serving a purpose to be transmitted to other healthcare professionals, in addition to you, as patients. So um, don't, we don't expect you to speak the language always. We're going to try to make the language more universal, so that people know what they're reading and saying. But I would I would take the same approach to open notes as it would to telehealth. Have a look if, you need, if, if it's if it's suitable for you, but don't feel obligated, and know that we will answer questions and review things, just like we always have, whether um, you've read through our notes or not. They're for you, but they're also for others. And if you have questions, ask. um, Be gentle. If we may have made a typographical error or had not um, essentially clicked an age or a birthday forward or things like that, we do make mistakes. But um, I think it's a great tool, much like telehealth, and really um, is um, something you can use to help round out your knowledge of your treatment and your cancer, but shouldn't be the only way you do it. So let me stop there, and we'll, we'll leave plenty of room for questions. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was a superb presentation, really wonderful. And I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A section as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Jesse Cox. Dr. Cox is Assistant Professor, Director, Molecular Forensic College of Medicine, Department of Pathology and Microbiology. University of Nebraska Medical Center, and Dr. Cox will be, is, a, is a pathologist, and he'll be addressing the role of the pathologist and how precision medicine contributes to treatment options for the treatment of cancer and discussion of open notes. Dr. Cox?
4: Yeah, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, as she had mentioned, I'm a molecular pathologist, and the role of pathology is to basically help establish diagnosis, diagnoses for our patients. So when a patient comes in and has a mass or they have some sort of elevated white counts, that tissue, um, those vials of blood would be sent to the pathology laboratory uh, for examination. So um, as the others had alluded to, um, kind of the cornerstone of our uh, workup when we're looking at tissues and, and cells and things like that is the microscope. So there's a lot of history and tradition in establishing a diagnosis based on the appearance of the cells uh, within a tumor, um, how those cells are arranged, um, where those cells are going in terms of normal anatomic structures, where those cells are invading to, and so on. And so um, the anatomic pathologist will take all of those uh, factors into account and start putting together basically staging information uh, for a particular patient and their, their tumor. The reason why the staging information is so important is, is because this is what basically forms um, the, the starting point for treatment for patients. And so as the others had alluded to, and as we get into the era of precision medicine, there are other ancillary tests beyond what we can just see with a standard microscope um, that the pathology department will employ. So one of the things that was talked about earlier were uh, mismatch repair proteins. So for instance, one of the things that we can do is something called an immunoperoxidase stain to look for the presence or absence of these particular proteins within uh, tumor cells. So if they're absent, a tumor may be mismatch repair deficient. If those proteins are present, a tumor may be uh, mismatch repair proficient more in line with the precision medicine uh, aspects of things, um, is getting into the molecular-based testing, um, the PCR, polymerase chain reaction-based test that I've been discussed earlier. So as precision medicine really started getting going in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, much of our molecular testing was looking at one spot within a patient's uh, tumor's DNA at a time. And over time, uh, we've become much more sophisticated in that we can look at hundreds or thousands of actual spots within a given tumor uh, instead of having to have uh, technologists work on these things uh, separately, we can do them all in parallel. And so the term next generation sequencing has been kind of thrown about, but I would uh, posit that a better term would be massively parallel sequencing, and that we can look at, again, hundreds of or thousands of genes at one time. And so the things that we're looking for are changes in the actual DNA sequence, which which then go on to make proteins that are uh, uh, expressed within a a tumor cell. And so based on these changes within the the DNA, um, we can predict change in function of these proteins. So in some circumstances, proteins may be overexpressed and may be doing their job too well. Or in other circumstances, changes in the uh, nucleotides may uh, cause the protein to break and stop uh, functioning. And so understanding how these uh, changes have occurred in the tumor can, again, help inform therapies to use, which treatment might be best. Um, What's the the prognosis for a particular tumor? Is this a tumor that's going to be more um, insidious or is this a tumor that's going to be uh, more aggressive and more malignant? And so, in the context of things like leukemias and lymphomas, um, if we identify uh, changes within uh, the DNA, RNA, which might be uh, indicate a more aggressive aggressive clinical course, those folks might go on to a bone marrow transplant uh, sooner uh, rather than a uh, therapeutic. Um, some of the things that we do specifically uh, in the molecular pathology world, is when we look at these mutations, many of the things that we find. Um, have not been reported widely, so in order to try to give our oncology colleagues some indication as to whether or not a change is important or not, we will go in and try to assess and determine the impact of a particular change on the biology um, of a particular protein and therefore a particular tumor type. Um, Some of the other um, things that we um, are concerned about um, kind of going forward is trying to determine how these changes may occur over time as well. So if uh, a patient um, has an initial uh, presentation of a tumor and then uh, comes back to us years later with a metastasis or something like that, we can go back and take a look to see what other additional changes uh, may have occurred within the tumor, again, to help inform um,
2: uh, diagnosis.
4: One of the things um, as we kind of get going and... Things become more sophisticated and whatnot, especially with regard to the Open Notes uh, initiative. Is that as you're looking through your pathology reports and things like that, things can be somewhat confusing. Um, I would suggest, and I have um, participated in, um, reaching out to the actual pathologists that looked at your tissues, um, that performed these assessments. Um, give them a call, ask them questions. Um, we in the pathology community love to teach. Um, we think. Um, that's one of the one of the reasons why many of us go into this field because we love sharing um, the things that we do and the the knowledge that we have and we want um, others to understand uh, and be clear about uh, what things are that. And so I think that about sums things up. I'd be more than happy to to try to answer any additional questions that you uh, all may have.
1: That was really an outstanding presentation, and really uh, highlighting the role of the. Um, of a molecular pathologist, really. So, really helpful to the participants to understand that and also to understand they can just pick up the phone and call um, the pathologist to get more information. So, it's wonderful. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And I'm just going to say a few words about the service of cancer care that you may all access. Um, I'm Dr. Carolyn Nestor. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I Um, Cancer Care is a national organization that offers free uh, programs and services to people nationally living with uh, cancer and their families and caregivers and loved ones. Um, People can contact Cancer Care by calling our HOPE line, 800-813-4673, or visiting our website, www.cancercare.org. So what are the services we offer? So often people call our HOPE line. And in the United States, and they just call and speak with one of The phone is answered by an oncology social worker. We have about 40 of them, and they will answer the phone, and um, usually people have a specific question that they're asking about, and then they will go over with them all the services that we offer. So the services we offer include a, a host of things. I'm going to go through, through some of them with you. We do offer practical financial and co payment assistance, which can be very helpful. That is specifically for people in the United States that, financial assistance. Um, We also offer online support groups, and those support groups are for all different types of cancer and actually for different people, so older adults, younger adults, partners, caregivers, um, young adults. It it really includes a gamut of people who are um, so basically both on cancer-specific types of support groups as well as Um, individuals who perhaps uh, and groupings of people who would want to be in a group together and bereavement groups as well. We also do offer um, these workshops, about 80 of them per year, and we do also offer publications. And you can access all the services Cancer Care offers by going to our website www.cancercare.org In addition to that, you may also um, be aware. want to be aware of just our pet assistance program, which is an a, a amazing program. That we many people, when they're ill with cancer, are not able to walk their cat, walk their dog, or their or change the little box of their cat, and they need someone to help with that assistance. And we provide assistance for those services, um, as well as um, sometimes with helping them getting food for their uh, pet as well. So that. Those are services that you can access. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to see how to access that program as well. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Rob to explain to our uh, participants how to queue up to ask questions. Uh, Rob? Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question.
1: And um, let's see, the first question is, For Dr. Chaudhry, is precision medicine a superior treatment to other kinds of treatment for cancer, such as chemotherapy, or does it depend on patient's prognosis type of cancer?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that precision medicine is more about how we decide which treatments to give. It's not really in reference to, you know, chemotherapy or targeted therapies per se, but I think it's more about how your physicians choose the therapies that are right for you. Um, so I think how I would describe it is, you know, after it includes the process of your doctors analyzing your tumor, thinking about you as a person, your other characteristics and deciding what's the best treatment for you. And that best treatment may be chemotherapy, it may be immunotherapy, it may be a combination of those two, or it could be targeted therapies. But I would say that it's not that one treatment is superior to another, but it's they've selected the one that is the best fit for you.
1: And just thank you so much. And the, the, many of the questions seem to be similar to this, but slightly different. So I'm going to for um, so uh, for Dr. Salts, if you could address, can precision medicine be done in conjunction with chemotherapy, radiation, or is it singular type of treatment? So there is that confusion about precision medicine being a treatment. Can you, can you explain yeah, that? Yeah.
0: So I guess we've all maybe not been clear enough in in, in trying to help you understand this. So um, let me explain. Precision medicine is basically a way of doing chemotherapy better. It's not a chemotherapy per se. It's not a treatment per se. What it is, if you think about it, chemotherapy is just a fancy word for drugs because we like big words in this business. And there are many different chemotherapy agents or different chemotherapy drugs that might be used in a particular situation. What precision medicine says is, okay, you are an individual. Your tumor is unique. We are going to learn as much as we can about you and about what makes your tumor tick so that we can try to figure out which are going to be the safest drugs, the most effective drugs, and uh, the ones that are going to have the best chance of helping you.
2: Excellent.
1: Thank you. I think that, and that's going to continue. We're going to have to repeat this. And I think some of these questions may people just have a hard time understanding it. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Saltz. Um, and the next question um, is one I'm going to give to Dr. Morrow, but it's similar. If I have already been receiving chemotherapy regularly, how will receiving precision medicine affect my treatment plan? <clears throat>
3: um, well, so following on the same theme, I think... Sometimes there's a real purpose to restaging or reanalyzing uh, someone's cancer. Um, there are many different ways of doing that. Sometimes it requires tissue, sometimes it requires blood. Sometimes um, it's things we can just see in the in the blood circulation that are essentially um, free in the blood. Um, so if you've already been receiving therapy, um, depending on how you're responding and what the initial testing was done, always keep an open mind to have further testing done to Clarify whether there is a better way. Dr. Saltz had to give chemotherapy. Sometimes tumors evolve and develop mutations or resistance. And mutation sounds bad, but that sometimes is a natural pattern. And we can essentially um, pivot. And this happens, for example, in chronic myeloid leukemia. The patient may be responding, and then if the response trails off, we we may find that um, a mutation has developed in the target for a therapy. So they might have had precision medicine to start with, but they need a different precision approach, mean a drug that's been tailored for their mutation test results to better suit them. I think the same rules apply in solid tumors. So um, don't think of them as as mutually exclusive where you you can't move to precision therapy. I think it's something to incorporate at any point from from soup to nuts, as I would say, beginning to end.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And for Dr. Cox, can you explain the difference between precision medicine and personalized medicine?
4: Yeah. Precision medicine, basically, um, what I would classify that is taking the characteristics that are unique to your um, tumor and taking those and using similar things that other individuals have to you and pulling that data together to try to figure out how is your tumor going to respond. Personalized medicine, I would kind of categorize in a little bit different fashion in that we're taking other characteristics with regard to your care specifically. Um, You know, your expectations, um, your other kind of overall general health, um, if there may be financial considerations, or if there are you know potential toxicities or other comorbidities, um, those types of things I think would more inform personalized medicine. So precision medicine I would more highly hinge upon what characteristics do your tumor have, and how are those characteristics similar to other people's tumors, and how did they respond? Can we use that information to predict how your tumor would respond, all else being equal. And then personalized, I would say, is taking all the other kind of factors into account. Um, how would we go about modifying treatment? So hopefully that, hopefully that helps quite a bit. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks. And then um, this question I'm going to leave open. I don't know who would bet best the answer this. Is precision medicine typically covered by insurance?
2: Simple,
0: simple answer is Yes um that um basically medicare covers uh the molecular analysis of tumor on virtually all advanced cancer any metastatic cancer and most stage 3 cancer at least and that's where we really use it and medicare kind of sets the standard if it's covered by medicare or other insurance covers it
3: i i this is dr Morrow. i can just add in blood cancers we um we don't necessarily have a stage um, limitation at all. I think it's probably a matter of doing testing that is known to be predictive or prognostic. Sometimes we want to go beyond that and we're doing testing that may not be predictive or prognostic. That's often the realm of clinical research. And um, so always ask uh, about the type of testing you might be having. Make sure you understand. And don't be um, shy if you are asked regarding clinical research. Sometimes it's really just, to develop the next precision medicine approach by understanding how people respond to treatment and what targets or what features their cancer may have. Uh, and it doesn't often require um, uh, additional effort or, or, or blood or tissue, maybe alongside the same test that's being done to actually obtain the information that's already been determined to be necessary and relevant.
1: And um, for Dr. Cox, what are some potential benefits of precision medicine? That's probably what people need to you really want to. Um, the nice thing about the Q and A is we have a chance to kind of explain things yeah. in, in detail. So thank you so much. If you could just address that that issue.
4: Yeah. So some of the benefits. So in general, the benefits are we want to try to find more effective therapies with less toxicity for a given patient. And so the way that we get at that is using all these kind of fancy testing um, modalities and things like that to try to characterize the patient's disease process better. So, for instance, um, one of the hats that I wear is um, doing what we call uh, tissue typing or histocompatibility. And so um, this type of testing is used to support our transplant programs. And so as part of that, there are certain people that have a certain – uh, protein that's expressed on all their cells, and if they have that particular protein, it basically opens up avenues for a certain class of drugs that they may take, especially in the context of something called uveal melanoma. Um, and so that's where kind of the precision medicine kind of gets to. The other thing that we kind of talked about were the mismatch repair proteins. So if your tumor is mismatch repair proficient or deficient, if it's mismatch repair deficient basically all of those tumor cells are going to be making lots and lots of new proteins that your body has never seen before. And so then you can kind of utilize that fact that your immune system should recognize those new proteins and should attack the tumor cells that are kind of making that. And so we can use those drugs to kind of help that natural kind of reaction kind of proceed. And so that's what, practically speaking, what precision medicine can do. It it opens up avenues for you, hopefully without, incurring a significant amount of toxicity. And then because we kind of know what's going on, we can better predict response instead of just kind of throwing darts in the dark, so to speak.
1: Excellent. I hope that's helpful. And um, and then for Dr. uh, Ashadhari, why should not all patients receive precision medicine?
2: Yeah, what I would say, again, and focusing on my background as a lung cancer doctor is, I would say that, you know, all of our patients do in some way receive precision medicine and that we, it is standard for us to um, do the same comprehensive analysis for all patients who are newly diagnosed, especially with stage four disease. So I would say that all patients should in some way receive precision medicine during their cancer um, diagnosis. And again, maybe to clarify, precision medicine, we're not talking about a specific treatment. We're talking about how, you know, the method by which your doctors choose the best treatment for you.
1: And they do it based on the fact that you're going to benefit from that treatment. So- exactly. So. So I may have asked this before. I'm going to ask. I guess I'll ask it again. Um, uh, from Dr. Morrow, um, is precision medicine a superior treatment to other kinds of treatment for cancer, such as chemotherapy, or does it depend on a patient's prognosis type of cancer?
3: Well, wow, this seems to be. Uh, I think we're stuck <laughs> on this topic. But um, oh, yeah. I, I think we want everyone. Um, I don't want to speak for everyone, but. I, I think we want to eliminate that separation between chemotherapy and precision medicine, sometimes the right chemotherapy drug if a if a patient is taken care of and if, with a perspective of precision medicine, that might be the best treatment, sometimes not. sometimes a certain targeted drug may be better or, or not um, so it's again, the precision part of it is just defining what is the best treatment and taking into into account things that we can do better nowadays, which is to characterize a tumor, um, identify a target, get to the genetic basis or the molecular basis, what makes a cancer tick. And again, the, the, the chemotherapy drugs we have, some of them are still our workhorses and, and, and they are quite useful. Sometimes they really complement a, what a uh, another medication, sometimes a targeted drug or a, a, one might think of as a, a product of a precision medicine approach, and they work together beautifully. So... Um, I hope that re answers the question.
1: Excellent, thank you. And for Dr. Salz, is precision medicine synonymous with clinical trials or is it something different entirely?
0: Oh, no, it's not synonymous with clinical trials, although it sometimes can create opportunities for you to access clinical trials. So remember, the whole concept of precision medicine is trying to get the right treatment to the right patient by identifying which treatment has the best chance of uh, effectively attacking the cancer. So
4: we use precision medicine
0: in our standard treatment, as we've been discussing, whereas I use it in selecting drugs in colon cancer, and Dr. Chowdhury would use it in selecting uh, the right drugs for patients with lung cancer and so on. But, um, often, uh, our clinical trials are developing drugs that are targeted, that are looking for a specific target uh, in a tumor in order for them to be effective. And so by doing a panel of uh molecular profiling on a tumor, we can see where, these mu- where the mutations are that are driving that tumor. And if, in fact, somebody has a mutation that matches uh, a, a drug in clinical trials, then that is going to create an opportunity for that patient potentially to participate in that trial. So a lot of the trials that we're seeing today um, are only... Available to somebody who has been matched to that trial by this type of precision medicine.
4: Excellent. And then um,
1: I think the last question: Um, What are some of the challenges facing precision medicine? Um, That's a shock, Harvey. Do you want to to address this?
2: Sure. I think some of the challenges are, um, there are a few different challenges. So one is I think we always want to come up with new treatments that we think would be better or address gaps in our ability to improve outcomes for patients. So I think there's always a process of trying to improve upon what we can already do for patients. And second, there could be challenges in, you know, in order to analyze your tumor, or, you know, this is really only for solid tumors, we would need adequate samples and we would need adequate, you know, biopsy specimens and sometimes that can be a challenge um, depending on the location of the tumor and we getting a biopsy. So I think it's always, you know, tissue is always the issue for us, um, which is a very necessary step to implementing precision medicine and also just coming up with better ideas to try to improve outcomes for patients.
4: Anyone else want to add
1: to that? Well, I have to say um this has been a phenomenal program. I must say we've done this program before, but the questions have been really interesting on this one. <laughs> Very interesting questions. Um I ask the, I'm going to ask our speakers if they would um provide a takeaway from today's program. Just
2: um you know, if you like a minute of
1: just a takeaway, take away people to take away, starting with Dr. Chaudhry, then um, Doctor Saltz, Dr. Morrow, and Doctor Cox. So um uh, so if um if Dr. shadra would like to go first, it's just just a takeaway. What you your most important to take away from the program today?
2: Yeah, I think the most important thing to take away is that it's important. I think there's more education that we could do as physicians on what precision medicine is, and I think you got you know everyone on this call for attending to learn more about it. But I think my biggest takeaway would be to talk to your physicians and other providers about how you think precision medicine could has already been implemented or could be implemented into your treatment plan to ensure that you understand um, what has been considered for your treatments and what has not been considered for your treatments. So just an open line of communication, as Dr. Saltz has previously said in the program, to ensure that you understand the treatment plan that's been created for you.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Saltz?
2: Yeah, I'll
0: just re-echo that same concept. Uh, keep uh, Keep the lines of communication wide open. Remember, it's not your responsibility as a patient to find the particular molecular uh change and 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 and, and uh, precision aspect that's your doctor's job um, what is really your uh job is to be in discussion with the doctor ask what have you found what are you looking for what else uh can we accomplish by understanding more about uh, the, uh, precision medicine aspects of, of, of cancer care. Does it open any more opportunities for me? That's what it's about. It's about trying to find a way to make your cancer care as successful as possible.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, Dr. Morrow.
3: Hard to add to that, but I guess I would say that, um, well, especially related to blood cancers, but I would tell patients to, um, to ask about research because um, a lot of the basis of all the things we've talked about today have come about by people being gracious and willing to allow us to better characterize their cancers. And that often requires research. And sometimes it's just allowing us to have access to the the test material that's done, whether it's a blood sample or a biopsy. Um, As Dr. Saltz mentioned, a lot of clinical trials are driven by choosing narrow bands of patients that fit into certain um, categories or 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 um, characteristics. Um, that certainly doesn't mean we're not doing research in a broad sense, but um, we've been able to move the field forward thanks to all of the collaboration we've had. And you might not know it, but across the, in the back end, as scientists and scientists clinicians, we often share hundreds and thousands of of samples together to, to use what we call big data. So the more, the the more, the merrier. So if if at all possible, ask about and and and. Um, open-minded about research because it, it it may serve you today and it, it may serve someone else tomorrow, and it's it's really how this whole thing has started.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore and Dr. Cox?
4: Yeah, so I'm just going to kind of expand on that. So I think it's always good to kind of take a look to see where we're at and where we're coming from and where we've been. And so, you know, from all of these years in the cancer research worlds, you know, basically the understanding of all the biology that's going on and all these kind of diverse sets of neoplasms and, and tumors and things like that really help us understand how these things are driven and then that, that, in turn, can help inform how we can best treat these things. And so I think it's important to realize that the options that we have um, as providers, as patients, um, and whatnot is vastly larger than what it was even 15-20 years ago. So um, hopefully this will keep accelerating um, as we keep going forward. Um, and then as the others have said, if you have questions about your diagnoses, if you have questions, reach out to any involved who have seen or touched your samples and, or your tissues and things like that. And so that way you can better have an understanding of what's going on and then subsequently have better follow-up questions and whatnot. So.
1: I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants as well. And although we've done this program before, I have to say that um, the questions today have been really interesting and important, and the interchange between the speakers and the participants have made this call so wonderful. Now, I do want to say a few words. For those of you who had a chance to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, uh, or in queue for asking a question because we have a large number of people and couldn't take all your questions. And for those of you who um, are thinking of a question that you might like to ask, we would like you to take all your information that you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team and take what you've learned today and ask your questions again and ask it over and over again. Remember, they know you the best because they have your medical records in front of them, and they can answer your questions in a way that's most helpful to you. So I hope that that will help you all. In addition to that, um, I just want to reiterate that um, although it often, when you have cancer, you and your caregiver, you feel alone. However, please know that although you may feel alone sometimes, you you are connected to a fairly large um, array of people who can help you, both your healthcare team um, and, of course, um, cancer care and many other nonprofit organizations in the cancer field that can assist you that are credible. So when you get the Survey Monkey evaluation from us, it's the evaluation of the program, but also will include also resources that you can use um, um, to get some additional information. So um, I encourage you to take advantage of those resources as well. Again, I want to thank you all very much for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.